From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. When a community tells its story every year in and out, this story of empathy, we're supposed to retell a story that centers ourselves in the narrative of oppression, that we know what it is to be oppressed, and then we know it is to be freed, when the Haggadah then ends by saying, now let all who are hungry come and eat, it is this radical call to action that because we have experienced hunger, we are to end hunger. Because we've experienced homelessness, we are to end homelessness. Because we experienced enslavement, we are to emancipate all people everywhere. Sunset this coming Wednesday marks the start of the Jewish festival of Passover, a celebration of mercy and liberation. It comes with traditions of food and prayer And there's a lot our troubled world can draw from the teachings of this season. And I'm looking forward to spending time on this week's show with Rabbi Jonah Pesner, director of the RAC, the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you made a donation, thank you for helping keep these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest, Rabbi Jonah Dob Pesner is director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism and has led the RAC since 2015. Rabbi Pesner also serves as senior vice president of the Union for Reform Judaism. Named one of the most influential rabbis in America by Newsweek magazine, he is an inspirational leader and tireless advocate for social justice. And he's here with us today on State of Belief Radio. Jonah, welcome. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be with you and great to be with Interfaith Alliance. So is it too early to say Happy Pesach? I'm excited that we're talking to you about Passover and on the week of Passover. So Happy Pesach. Thank you. It's never too late and too early because there's this great phrase, Paul, in the Jewish tradition. The rabbis say, There is no early or late in the biblical text. Everything that happened once upon a time happens every time. Uh, And when the Israelites, my ancestors, received their emancipation from slavery in Egypt, it happened 5,000 years ago, and yet we replay it day after day, year after year. So it's never too late, never too early to say happy Pesach. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is the reason I love talking to Rabbi Pesner. I mean, that was like the most rabbinical response. I love it. I love it. So maybe you can get into that. Like, talk to us about Passover. For our listeners who maybe, you know, have heard it, they know their Jewish friends are observing it, but maybe don't really know what the um, celebration goes into. Maybe you can talk a little bit, a little bit of an introduction. Sure, Paul, I'm happy to do it. And, um, you know, I often call the Exodus story, the story that we retell every year at our Seder tables at Passover, the master story of the Jewish people. It's kind of like the archetypal narrative that explains who we are and why we are. 
And, you know, your listeners may know every year, some of them have probably been, whether they're Jewish or not, have been at Seder's, which means order. It's the order of the telling of the story. The Haggadah, which is the book we use, uh, literally means the telling. And we're commanded to every year gather as Jews to have this festive meal and at the meal to retell the story of our exodus from Egypt. It's, of course, the second book of the five books of Moses. It's the book of Exodus in both the sacred tradition of the Jewish people, the Christian community, and, of course, in Muslim scripture as well. Um, And we call it the master story of the Jewish people because when we retell it at our Seder tables, the rabbis say that every person at the table should see themselves as this they themselves were a slave in Egypt, as if they themselves were emancipated and freed, and then they themselves had the experience of freedom. And, you know, Paul, just to build on that, you know, my thesis is when a community tells its story every year in and out, this story of empathy, we're supposed to retell a story that centers ourselves in the narrative of oppression, that we know what it is to be oppressed, and then we know it is to be freed, when the Haggadah then ends by saying, now let all who are hungry come and eat, it is this radical call to action that because we have experienced hunger, we are to end hunger. Because we've experienced homelessness, we are to end homelessness. Because we experienced enslavement, we are to emancipate all people everywhere. It mm, is so powerful. And it is, uh, for me, always a pleasure to be invited to a Seder. There's there's all kinds of different Haggadahs, aren't there? Like there's like a, like a plethora. You know, I, I remember when I was at Princeton, there were like seven different satyrs and you could choose your like, there was the speed satyr and then there were like, you know, there were just, but then there was the social justice satyr, there's an eco satyr. I mean, I'm curious, do you have a preferred uh, Haggadah that, that you use? You know, uh, I love the question. I create my own every year. And the miracle of it used to be in the old days, we would we would Xerox and cut and paste different texts from different, you know, some from biblical and rabbinic sources, but Paul, some from our, you know, Christian sources, Muslim sources, some from civil rights literature, from wow. some from literature and art. Um, and now because of, you know, technology, we can kind of every year uh, integrate various, you know, readings about, you know, um, like this year, for sure, we'll have a reading about gun violence in America. We just, when you and I are having this conversation, we just lost six more victims of a school shooting. Three nine-year-old children in a Christian school murdered by a weapon of mass destruction because our country seems to love guns more than children. Um, so in the same way that I just said that the satyr is a call to action to have empathy for those who are oppressed, one of the calls to action will be to have empathy for all those who are the victims of gun violence and to, in the spirit of let all people be free, let us be free from the plague of gun violence. So those are the kinds of readings yeah. we'll include in our tables. Right. I mean, what is so amazing about that, which I love so much, which is like here you have a 5,000-year-old tradition, which is organic and alive in the moment right now. And it, it is just – I think it's an incredible um, testimony to the endurance and how every generation, every individual but also family and, and community makes the story – matter for them. And it doesn't mean it's individualized. It just means that it's personalized in a way that is deeply impactful. And I think that our traditions are are most alive when we're given that permission to like recognize that it's going to mean something to me 
to have that kind of reading around gun violence in the middle of our Seder when we're talking about freedom. What does it mean to be free from violence? It's just, it's incredibly beautiful. Let's back up a little bit and just tell me a little bit about your, when you were young and having, you know, Seders. I don't even really remember where you grew up. Um, but what was it like um, when maybe, isn't there like something where the youngest person hides that? I don't know. You you have to tell me. But like, it seems like this is such also like a part of memory for many Jews. What happens at Passover is like connecting also with our ourselves throughout our lives. Yeah, no, without a doubt, Paul. I mean, you know, the data shows something interesting. Overwhelmingly, the number one thing most Jewish people do, and, and not just Jews, Jewish adjacent people, more than go to the high holy days, more than observe the Sabbath, certainly more than keeping kosher, is go to a Passover Seder. The most secular Jews like show up every year at someone's home and do the Seder. And, and I'm of course you've been to a Seder, Paul. And I, again, of course, most of your listeners I bet have. And I would I would urge people, if you haven't been or you haven't been in a while, get some Jewish friend to get you invited to their Seder. Um, I myself, I grew up in lower Manhattan. My dad would, you know, host in our small New York apartment, um, you know, a dozen or more people, family, friends. But one of the things that was uh, beautiful in this, you know, very authentically, particularistically Jewish tradition where we read from the Gutta and the Hebrew blessings and the Hebrew prayers, there was always, always strangers at our table. And for my dad, it was part of him fulfilling the commandments of welcoming a stranger very much that grows out of the, you know, the Exodus story. It says we were slaves in Egypt and therefore we're to love the stranger. We're to love the person who is not like us. So my dad, invariably, if there was somebody who was down on their luck, lost a job, had just had a divorce or a death, um, somebody who was new in the community, uh, they would be invited to our Seder. And I thought it was normal. And, and by the way, every Friday night at Shabbat dinner, again, these guests would be included because this was my dad modeling for us, social justice isn't just about public policies that are passed in the public square. It's how do you model the love and the welcome, you know, at your at your own table. Uh, and by the way, the tradition you asked about, the youngest child has to read the four questions, um, which are the questions that uh, the rabbis created because they, the whole goal of the Seder experience was that you should teach your child on that day so that your child will be curious and will ask questions about, you know, uh, why and why we do this and and uh, what it what does it mean and get them curious and by the way one of the ways to keep the kids interested I think what you're thinking of is hiding the afi komen right so at one point um, the children the 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 host of the seder would break the matzah in half and say this half of the matzah this is like the broken world our job as Jews is to repair it. And you can see how the matzah would be repaired, the matzah, which is the bread of affliction. It was the bread my ancestors ate when their bread didn't have time to rise, right? So it's the flat uh, bread like a cracker. So the kids would be encouraged to steal one half of the matzah and hide it and hold it as a ransom at the end of the Seder because you can't end the Seder until the host puts the matzah back together and heals the world. And they would give you some kind of prize or some kind of uh, uh, maybe even, you know, money or chocolates or something, but it was just to keep kids interested because they really, yeah. this was really yeah. about the next generation being able to see itself in the story. It's, it's beautiful. And I love that about curiosity, asking the questions. I mean, for me, 
the primary spiritual discipline for all of us is curiosity, continuing to be curious about our traditions, about the traditions of our neighbors, about the traditions of people who are around the world. This idea of curiosity being literally baked into the service is amazing. I love it. So you mentioned gun violence. You are the director of the RAC. Tell us a little bit about the RAC. And as you think about the work that you spend 28 hours a day doing, how does that fit into the Passover message? It feels like the RAC exists in some ways to almost like fulfill the Passover mandate. Yeah, Paul. I mean, I think if you had to have a North Star uh, of scripture that guides you, right? For me as a rabbi and the head of the rack, the Religious Action Center, that biblical narrative of redemption, of emancipation, of seeing ourselves in the lives of others who are oppressed, that's my North Star for our work. And we were actually born seven decades ago out of the civil rights movement. Um, we were the host of, well, it's a great story, which I'll tell in a second, but to remember that the touchstone biblical text of Dr. King and the faith-based movement that was the civil rights movement was, of course, the Exodus narrative mm-hmm. um, for African-Americans living in the United States during Jim Crow and before Jim Crow enslavement. The Exodus narrative was their story of liberation as the way it's been the master story of redemption for many oppressed people. So the, the story of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism is, is quite enormous. So we are the largest denomination in Jewish life. We're two million souls represented by 2,000 rabbis in 900 communities across North America. We've been around in the United States for two centuries. But the reason we have this office in Washington is because one of our prime leaders, a great person named Kivi Kaplan, uh, as a young man uh, during the Jim Crow era, uh, he was a white Jewish man who was visiting Florida for his honeymoon. He had come from the North. And he and his wife, Emily, saw a sign all over Florida that they had never seen in the Northeast, which was no Jews, no dogs. It was their first confrontation with anti-Semitism, and they turned to a black taxi driver that had been driving them around South Florida and asked if this was common. And the black taxi driver just looked at them, Paul, and said, they don't even bother with us. Oh. Suddenly, Kaplan understood what King was trying to teach, which is if you oppress any of us, you oppress all of us. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. No Jews, no dogs. They don't even bother with us. The plight of what was happening to black Americans in Jim Crow South was hopelessly bound up in what was going to happen to Jews in America. So out of that experience of antisemitism, he donated. First of all, he became active in the NAACP. He was the last white Jewish president of the NAACP, which in its history was a coalition of mostly white Jews and black Christians. And he donated the Religious Action Center's building, an embassy-sized building in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. to A the beautiful Reform. building, a beautiful it, building. Which is honored to host Interfaith Alliance and other of our partners because Kaplan's stipulation in making the gift was that it had to be a, a hub for civil rights activity. And so our founder, Rabbi Dick Hirsch, called his dear friend, a charismatic pastor named Martin, and said, Martin, you now have a home in Washington. So that's why Dr. King used to use our offices in Washington. The Leadership Conference for Civil Rights used to uh, use our offices. There was no address for civil rights in D.C. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 were written in our conference room, that of a Jewish organization in D.C., and for 70 years since then, we have been part of every multiracial interfaith 
Coalition for Civil Rights, including our work with Interfaith Alliance and all of the partners who bring about, whether it's LGBTQIA equality, women's reproductive uh, health, uh, healthcare access, and all of the various civil rights fights of our time. It just is such a powerful history and continues to be a hub today and and uh, I would say a destination and it, it really is moving. So it, it, let's talk about today. Like, you know, you mentioned a, a lot of different um, areas you work on. One of the things that, you know, seems to be a um, rising threat um, that we're taking very seriously at Interfaith Alliance is uh, rising anti-Semitism, or at least open manifestations of it. I'm curious to what extent the RAC um, feels like its job to respond to that, or is it is it really our job as an uh, interfaith organization that includes many Jews, but also a much broader coalition, to make sure that we are in some ways responsible for responding to anti-Semitism, because again, it's it's our neighbors, it's our friends, it's us, and so we, we you know, so I, I I hate to ask Jewish organizations, what are you doing about anti-Semitism? Because it doesn't feel like that's the right response. We need to we need to be doing something. But I am curious how you understand anti-Semitism right now, and and perhaps some of um, either advice or some uh, uh, invitation for how we should be approaching the work against anti-Semitism in 2023. Now, Paul, first of all, thank you for asking the question. Um, thank you as a interfaith organization asking the question about anti-Semitism, which of course is on this you know, violent and hateful rise alongside with the other isms we're experiencing. Racism, anti-Black racism continues to be the most experienced and widespread form of bigotry and hate in the United States and the rise in violence against Muslim community, Asian American community, LGBTQIA people, uh, uh, undocumented people, the list goes on and on and on. But naming antisemitism, which is of course its own unique thing, I appreciate you and your leadership. And I would I would remind folks like the Religious Action Center, my social justice civil rights organization was founded out of a moment of antisemitism because Kitty Kaplan understood antisemitism wasn't something that you could just confront in a vacuum. Um, it was a moment of the interconnection between anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism that he realized our safety is in our solidarity and all of the Voting Rights Act, our redemption as a nation, despite all of the challenges, 400 years of systemic racism and the suppression of voting rights, et cetera, will come through democracy. So this is why we do this work in an interfaith way. And I would say two things. One is it is incumbent on the broader multiracial interfaith community to own the challenge of anti-Semitism in the same way that we have to own all of the isms, right? It can't just be the Jews. No minority can fight this alone. And for my friends out there who are not Jewish to know that the violence against Jews is measurably on the rise. The reported hate crimes against Jews, attacks on synagogues, beatings of individuals who are uh, outwardly Jewish have hit unprecedented peaks. 20% of Americans believe in the kind of conspiracy theory, anti-Jewish tropes. This is the latest uh, data that's coming out of, uh, of the research community. Uh, and so it's on all of us. And at the same time, the second thing is to say, we have to lean into the solidarity approach, which is to keep each other safe, to really show up for our Muslim neighbors when they're impacted, uh, just as we're asking them to show up for us when we're impacted. I'll, I'll just close and tell the incredible story about the tree of life 
massacre in, in uh, uh, October uh, of um, 2018, just before the midterm elections. This poll was something like I had never seen. I rushed in to be with my Pittsburgh Jewish family and went to Soldiers and Sailors Hall for the interfaith vigil. There were tens of thousands of people, standing room only. And what we saw was really remarkable. The Muslim community, Wazi Muhammad stood up and committed to raise money for all of the impacted families out of the Muslim community. Muslim leaders offered to stand guard outside of synagogues. Uh, then Vincent Cole, a very prominent African-American pastor, said, let's remember, one, this was an attack on Jews, full stop, and an attack on a Jew is an attack on all of us. Number two, he said, let's also remember that three days ago, two black people were shot at a Kroger supermarket because the church that the shooter went into was locked because black churches now are locked because of Mother Emanuel uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. And he said, and third, let's remember this synagogue was attacked because it was a highest Hebrew immigrant aid society congregation that was doing refugee resettlement, not for Jewish refugees. And he said, in this community of Pittsburgh, we are a solidarity city. And Paul, the people in the room, tens of thousands, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, the full multiracial array started chanting, vote, 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 because mm. they understood Right, our safety is in our solidarity, but we could only make change through a robust, multiracial, inclusive democracy in which every voice is actually heard. Ugh. I am literally on the verge of tears right now. I just that that story is so moving. It is every syllable of it rings true to me. Uh, our safety is in our solidarity is what you started with. And I just feel like that is so important. We will not create little cocoons of safety. And uh, it's just uh, amazing what you offered there as just a, a reminder and also like what that church had been. And I, you know, I, I agree. I remember reading about the highest and, 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 and that that was a major motivator for the murder was this idea of taking in uh, refugees who happened to be Muslim and many others. Uh, and this was, a, you know, a Jewish organization. This idea of solidarity is so important. More with Rabbi Jonah Pesner is coming right up. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all on stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, where religion and democracy meet. You mentioned like a, a robust democracy and and uh, the RAC's commitment to the robust democracy. I feel like Interfaith Alliance is very much right there. And and we're trying to figure out like what is the best way to put our resources and mobilize people to protect democracy, which I feel like is being hollowed out and attacked in from various locations, the denigration of people, the, the restrictions of voting opportunities, but also just the hollowing out of our civic life, the attack on, on libraries, on higher education, all kinds of things. I, how, how do you view that as the head of a, of a major um, action coalition? Well, you know, it really is our origin story. Uh, Kitty Kaplan understood the intersection of keeping minorities safe 
with a robust democracy. And it seems that white supremacy in our country, whenever it rears its ugly head, which is happening more and more, the way that it tries to maintain its hegemony and its power in our country is suppressing votes, is co-opting mm -hmm. democracy and making democracy not truly representative or inclusive, but just a way to maintain the status quo. And if you draw a line from, you know, Jews will not replace us at a Confederate uh, statue um, to tree of life shooting, to the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. Think about, you know, Confederate flag waving insurrectionists who in the spirit of the Confederacy, right, want to maintain their power. And so for us, uh, it is both a, a call to Jewish values around the values that come out of our exodus, that we're not free unless all people are free. And the way that you protect that in America is through, is through a democracy. Um, and so we lean into 501c3 appropriate nonpartisan civic engagement. We're not worried about who gets elected and how uh, parties operate. We're not about political partisanship or parties. We really have faith that in this country, if every person had equal opportunity to have their voices be heard through a vote that gets counted, that the issues and the values would sort itself out. The only reason, obviously, we still have this plague of gun violence in our country is because the NRA is still too powerful because of their dark money and the way they buy off politicians. And we need to make the NRA not relevant anymore. And that will be become when we have an, when really when we have 100 percent participation and look at the polling. Most Americans want to get these weapons of mass destructions out of the hand of shooters. Most people, by the way, are for LGBTQ equality. Most people are for racial justice. Most people are for women's right to control their body and healthcare choices and reproductive justice. So we've got to have an electorate that actually reflects the values and the positions of our people. Yeah, you say it so perfectly. What are the ways that RAC views interfaith coalitions to help make that happen? When you're setting your agenda or priorities, and as you see it from your, your perspective as a social justice um, leader and also as the leader of a denominational action coalition, what's your next step in saying, okay, let me think about like Muslims who can help? Or I'm just wondering, like, I, this is not idle curiosity because, you know, I want to be ver a very good partner for you with Interfaith Alliance. I'm curious, like, how you imagine interfaith coalitions as well as secular groups um, coming together to to work on issues that really matter to Iraq. Yeah. And let me be clear. Everything we do is in broad based multiracial interfaith coalitions. Because we understand, you know, there are 2 million Reformed Jews. There's maybe 5, 6, 7 million Jews or Jews adjacent America. In the hundreds of millions of people, we will only bring about liberation and protection of all people if we come together across lines. And this is why, by the way, Paul, just on a personal note, why I love you, your whole career, whether it was at Auburn or Interfaith America or now at the Interfaith Alliance, you have led through your own authentic, particular ministry and uh, theology into interfaith multiracial spaces because you live that. So you embody what we care about and, you, and Interfaith Alliance has been a great partner for us in the past and will continue to be. So all of our work, our synagogues, we train our rabbis and our synagogue leaders to build the interfaith relationships, both on a local level, like right in their cities, like who is the local imam, who is the local pastor or pastors, who are the civil rights leaders? What are the NGOs, whether it's the NAACP or, you know, the various other issue oriented groups to be in coalition with and then to be part of statewide coalitions, to be part of, you know, being part of like 30, 40, 50 other synagogues 
as part of a bigger multiracial interfaith entity. And then, of course, here in Washington, every uh, campaign we're involved in, some of which are with Interfaith Alliance, are those kind of interfaith multiracial coalitions, because when we come together, we win. Yeah. I want to talk about one thing, just because I think it feels it just I'll put on the, the Jewish side of my 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 body right now. But it feels like, you know, especially we can even use the term like people of the book, but um, book bans feel like especially kind of pernicious. I mean, it 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 feels like, you know, that 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 knowledge, um, especially knowledge like Tony Morrison or like knowledge that is like mind expanding, that is introducing people to new concepts, that, you know, that even knowledge that can be sometimes uncomfortable has to be gotten rid of. I, I just find that perhaps like there's so many disturbing things, but that one feels absolutely crazy to me as, as um, you know, coming from a tradition of of knowledge producers and, and, and also like people who really took books very seriously and the importance of, of not only literature, but, but um, history and all of these things. And I, I just feel like there's something about, I feel like religious people need to find our voice, our specific voice around the book banning, because it's not, it feels very um, like an affront to religious um, sensibilities. I love that you asked that and drew the connection. Um, we certainly, the Jews call themselves the people of the book, obviously, because, you know, in human history, you know, for thousands of years, we passed down this written tradition. It started as an oral tradition, but it was words. Uh, obviously, the Torah, the, the first five books, the, the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible, the Talmud, which is rabbinic literature, the Haggadah that we'll read from on Passover is a kind of written document. Um, and there is this chilling uh, at the Holocaust Museum Memorial, chilling, uh, you know, picture with the words underneath it that say, first they burn books and then they burn bodies, mm -hmm. right? This is this idea that when people start banning books and then ultimately burning books, human bodies will be burned. So we Jews, we get our hackles up when we see this stuff. And I do want to, I want to say something though, wonderful and redemptive, Paul. We have a leader in Texas uh, Cameron Samuels, who is 19 years old, one of our teen leaders, who we trained, we trained 3,000 teenagers every year to lift their Jewish moral voice, to learn their Jewish textual and values-based uh, tradition, and then learn to apply them to issues of the day, and then go advocate either on Capitol Hill or in their state legislatures. So Cameron returned home from our training only to discover that Cameron's local library was going to do one of these book bans. So Cameron organized a 19-year-old, I think at the time, Cameron was 18, an interfaith, multiracial, intergenerational coalition. They put enough pressure on the school board. The school board actually reversed the, this book ban. They were keeping some LGBT wow. books out I, of library. So we can do this. We can rise that up. That is a great story because honestly, it feels like the, I, I haven't really heard any <laughs> – any good stories. I mean, I've really heard a lot of bad stories, but I do think it's like, you know, I think people are just I, I, honestly like I feel like my jaw is just open and I'm like my mouth is letting in flies going, what is happening? I love that Cameron is like actually not on my watch. We're going to figure out a way. And it, and it, it, I do think it's about local organizing, about bringing people together and say, no, this is not what we're going to do. This is not the community we want. What what um, what community is that? Where in Texas was it? 
uh, like a suburb or exurb of Houston. Okay. I mean, that is, that is so exciting. So you've been, you've been at the rack since 2015. Do I have that right? Yeah. So it's been a really like kind of a calm time, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) How do you view this arc that we're in right now? I mean, you know, there, there's a very, you know, familiar phrase to, to many of the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Like, what is the arc right now and how do you how do you view your arc at the rack and and where you where we are right now in uh in like as a nation it it it's it feels very like a um a seminal moment if you don't mind me using that word and like what's going to happen next and over the next like 18 months is just going to be critical for the future of our yeah. country no, I really appreciate you asking the question. And, you know, it's funny that you referenced starting 2015, you know, at the time that I took on this position and my predecessor, who, you know, Rabbi David Saperstein had been in the role for 40 years. I mean, he's a biblical figure. Uh, President Obama had appointed him to be the ambassador at large for international religious freedom. You know, we had passed the Affordable Care Act. Um, we had made huge progress on LGBTQ equality. We, you know, had won marriage equality. Um, and I sat in my office at the looking at the plaque where it said the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 were, were written. And I thought to myself, I wonder what I'm going to do with, you know, it seemed like it was so done. And then. Yeah, you just need to you just need to tidy up. Right. It, and then the earthquake of the 2016 election happened and all of the ramifications, uh, not just of that election, but underneath the upheaval and the 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 unprecedented uh, assault on our values, both in rhetoric and bigoted and racist policies that flowed, you know, throughout that period. And I turned to, in the days after, as we were trying to organize the both civil rights community and the Jewish community and the, and the faith community, I turned to Cheryl and Eiffel, who at the time was the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And I asked her, Sherilyn, how are we going to get through this? And Paul, she said to me words I will never forget. She's a very wise person. She should be a Supreme Court justice. Sherilyn said, Rabbi, I had ancestors who were born into African enslavement here in the U.S. or the enslavement of African people. And I have ancestors who died before it ended. I can't afford to think about one day at a time. I think about the arc of history. And I thought, what a what a critique or a, a rebuke to a Jew who should know better. We have a 5,000 year arc, as we said earlier. My people were the people who were enslaved in Egypt for 300 years before they journeyed. So this moment, like many in history, is fraught with danger. Our democracy is on the line. Um, Whether we will be the multiracial inclusive nation and overcome finally white supremacy is on the table. And I have a resilient thousands year view of what it has to take for humans come together, all created in God's image, to build a kind of collective power to bring about the world as it should be, the world of justice and love for everyone, despite the injustice and the reality of oppression that we experience every day. That is just such a good answer. And uh, it it reminds us to keep our head up. Uh, you know, have our have the horizon far, but really working now as much as we can. Sherilyn Eiffel, 
just got the Brandeis Medal from University of Louisville <laughs> Law School, and I was invited to go down, and I'm sorry I wasn't able to do it. It conflicted um, with a trip out to California, but um, very, you know, the right person to get that medal and, um, you know, such a powerful story. So one thing I like to ask people like yourself who are in the middle of it, and, and you kind of have already uh, – gave us some answers, but right now, where do you find hope to keep you going with this work? Like what people, principles, religious wisdom give you hope these days? To me, to be a Jew is to have hope. Uh, Leo Beck, the great rabbi who led, uh, who survived uh, Berlin just before the Holocaust and led his people through that terrible, terrible time in our history used to say that it is a commandment for Jews to have hope, never lose hope. And we're celebrating, as we said earlier, the festival of our freedom, Passover, which is also known the season of our joy, um, as all of our festivals are. And uh, so I find hope in three places, Paul. Number one, uh, people like you. Uh, we can't do this alone. We do it together in relationships. So when I think about the pastors, the imams, the civil rights leaders, the activists, the young people, who are leading our movement for transformation, that gives me hope. The second is my own tradition. Uh, I'll read that Seder Haggadah for Passover yet again this year, and in it find joy and wisdom and resilience. And then finally, I have hope because I'll be sitting around the Seder table, 25 of my family, and we will have survived everything from COVID um, to the assault on our values uh, and our people and the challenges of this nation. And we will hold hands and sing songs and say, we are still here. And we're committed to being here, not just to survive, but to thrive. So I have a lot of hope. I love it. And last question. Um, how do you understand the principle of religious freedom in America? You know, for Jews, religious freedom is uh, really, really critical and important because it is an instrument, uh, and I think unique in many ways in human history for us, where the United States and it's the experiment was one in which uh, all people of all religious minorities could not just be free, but thrive and be protected as religious minorities. So we take very seriously religious freedom. Where it draws the line is where religious freedom becomes, or so-called religious freedoms, becomes a weapon of oppression and a way to preference what we're seeing right now in our country, which is white Christian nationalism, a certain, just one religion getting preferenced overall in the name of religious freedom saying, well, then we can pass policies and practices that actually disempower uh, uh, religious minorities. For example, um, it is very clear in Jewish tradition that there are times when abortion is required. Um, and so it is a, uh, an issue of religious freedom for us to be able to have access in certain times, certain instances, to reproductive health care and abortion rights. So for uh, you know, those with a religious agenda to impose uh, one religious view in the name of religious freedom on the rest of us actually is a weaponization of religious freedom to oppress all of us. So we wanna make sure that all religious minorities can thrive uh, and that it doesn't become a tool of oppression, whether it's you know taking away the rights of LGBTQIA people to thrive uh, or other examples of the use of religious freedom to actually be a tool of oppression. Yeah. Let's use religion to celebrate, not discriminate. 
I, I think that is absolutely right, and I, I feel exactly the same way. Rabbi Jonah Pesner is director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, a dedicated advocate for social justice and a respected interfaith leader. He's co-editor of the book, Moral Resistance and Spiritual Authority, Our Jewish Obligation to Justice. Jonah, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you. It was an honor, Paul. Thank you. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. You can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on the State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.